Welcome to The Rep. This is Julie Cortez. On June 13th, 2019, I sat down with Nicholas Avila, Oregon Shakespeare Festival Fair alum and director of our 2020 production of The Tempest. Welcome, Nicholas. Hello. Can you start by telling us a bit about what The Tempest means to you? Yeah, I think uh, as a, The Tempest for me is, is a play that uh, I've seen a few times and uh, experienced in production and always had a little bit of uneasiness about, you know, you don't quite know how to feel about the protagonist. Um, and it always feels a little unresolved. And so when I started to read it from the perspective of how now as a director, do I look at telling the story? I, I found that that sort of conflict or the unresolved nature of it may be kind of the point of it in that, um, Storytelling in this particular time uh, for Shakespeare as he is embarking uh, on mixing genres, right, which we've come to know, I think, uh, have been labeled different things. They were called the romances. They were called now problem plays, one of the two, now back to sort of romances. Problem plays for I, I read a, a program note yesterday that Olivia Garcia did a really nice sort of uh, intro to a, uh, one of the, the plays uh, uh, speaking about that. But I think there's a lot of things problematic in that it's mixing sort of genres and it's, mi it's, it's mixing emotions and feelings and conflict. Uh, I think that with this particular play, uh, as with others that are in this same sort of at the time that he's writing this stylistically, um, there is an unresolved feeling. And I think at times when I've seen those productions of those plays, there sometimes is a need to resolve what may not be intended to resolve. And um, I think that sort of goes back to maybe perhaps what we here in America, uh, we sort of, we long for the happy ending and we long for it to be sort of tied together in a way that that is digestible and we want sort of an answer. And I think this poses a big question. Um, and The Tempest for me, as I'm reading it now, really is speaking early in my development, of course, uh, for the play uh, in my development process of the thoughts is that the the conflict of human nature that lives within each one of us, the potential for good and, and bad, for lack of a better phrase, and how we wrestle for that in order to get what we want. Um, there's a protagonist in this play who is the whole time speaking, has a relationship with the audience, is asking for our empathy, asking for our understanding that what was his was taken from him and he was wronged and that we should sort of be on his side in order to get those. And somehow we're supposed to forget or not pay attention to the enslavement of Ariel and Caliban. Um, that the, the crier, right, the one who's screaming ouch, is now pinching others to get what he wants back. Uh, and I think that that sort of battle between the two different sides of each one of us is reflected in most every single character in the play. Um, the only ones that it's not reflected in are the young ones, the young, the, the lovers. And what happens in the play, uh, Shakespeare is sort of fascinated at times with sleep and wake consciousness. And it's, it's about consciousness, Hamlet, right? To die, to sleep, you know, to sleep, a chance to dream and, and then Macbeth sleep no more, 
You know, there's so many references to sleep and it's not just rest. It is, it is awareness. And if, you know, you're a reader of biblical sense that once you take the bite of the apple and you know, you can no longer go back. Once you're awake, you can no longer sleep, you know? So Prospero makes the effort to keep Miranda asleep while the actions of the player committed. Um, and I think that in many ways, we all, uh, and those that are awake that wish to be asleep, try to do that with drink in the play. You know, there's always these efforts to, to forget. So I think that what the hope is, is that uh, for Prospero in this play where he's committing these actions and is asking the audience to forgive, but yet for some reason, which is interesting, right, that he doesn't share the actions entirely with his daughter. Uh, and somehow they are the ones that have an opportunity to make a, a, a future that may or may not be different. Um, so The Tempest right now is speaking to me, I think, primarily in, in that field. Um, uh, as I'm early in the development of these, these, these ideas will be condensed. But I think this is a play that wants to examine the potential dark nature in humanity to commit actions that may or may not be questionable in order to get what it is they want as you know um that this sometimes we want to control the outcome and in doing so we may or may not commit actions that are unfavorable are there production choices or just things you're mulling you're ready to talk about right now and especially as they relate to being in the outdoor Alan elizabethan theater it's it's pretty early and and there's uh, the design team is not in yet in place, uh, and there's lots of questions that I have, uh, and probably I would take up most of this podcast in in if I start to go through all the different things that are that are sort of in my brain at the moment, um, I might take up too much time and run around all the things. I will say, however, that uh, it is it is a great challenge in and i don't mean that in a bad way i mean that in a very good way that the elizabethan stage presents there's also a great uh there are great possibilities in that space it, it is a character in the play and to to consider it anything else i think would be sort of playing against it and then when you play against a given circumstance it usually ends up badly um there are production choices i i think that you know when we start to create the world of this play that I think we will try to find uh, harmony with the space that is in the, the venue and, and the avenue and, and, and how it works. But I, I think um, we spoke a little bit earlier. So if there's certain things you want me to talk about, I'd be happy to revisit those, but I'm not sure which ones are relevant at the moment. Maybe going ahead and talking a little bit about um, your, how you ponder the fact that it probably or maybe was never done outdoors and then how that oh, yeah. relates to like the audiences then and now. Yeah. Yeah. That was a funny thing as I'm reading, uh, whenever I'm getting into a play, I just try to absorb as much information about the world of that play, whether it be a brand new piece or Shakespeare and the advantage of Shakespeare pieces, we have a lot of history, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot to grab. And, uh, in, in in some very credible materials that I read that are sort of my go-to pieces, uh, there's they don't know that this play was ever done outside in the Globe um, because by that time they had moved into the Blackfriars there. We know that it was done at Whitehall because it was um, King one of King James's favorites. He even commissioned it to be played at his daughter's wedding, if you can believe that. 
this play was when he had at his daughter's wedding. Uh, so it was done at, by that time, uh, the King's men were rock stars, you know, I guess, because they just had their stuff. So they weren't, you know, uh, they had made it. So uh, they were playing it out. They were playing it at Blackfriars and inside. And there's lots of evidence of how Shakespeare's writing style changed based on the circumstances of where he was and what he was doing. Uh, and he started to play with the magic and mysticism and different things in these romances or problem plays or the genre mixing um, that are specific to indoor, the indoor theaters. So it's a good, it's fun. Uh, <laughs> and you'd go, okay, so now then how do we, how do we, how do we achieve some of the, the biggest, um, theatrical elements of magic and mysticism and the rest that happen in the first 10 minutes of this play, um, when we're outside in daylight or evening light. But it's there's no light, you know. We don't have access to the certain design elements that we've come to take for granted in the theater that are always at our disposable, at disposal, disposable. Yeah. yeah. So a fun thing to consider and to surprise our audience with. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the possibilities for okay, now we have to be. It's it's kind of fun in a way because it's like now we have to go back to you know what I mean to sort of that 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 style of theater that. Uh, you know, where where that sort of necessity, you know, is is asking us to invent something to make it. Um, and, you know, at the beginning, when you're when you're looking at the issue on paper, you just go, oh, that's a challenge. And then it gets exciting. And then you're like, you you we inevitably arrive. We'll arrive at some place really exciting, I think. Um, we talked earlier a little bit about what you're envisioning for Caliban, or at least what you're envisioning not doing with Caliban. Yeah. Can you share that? Well, Yes, I think that part of what I think is interesting is um, in some ways, I guess, for like Prospero's trying to pull a fast one a little bit, right, on all of us. And I think that he he is an anti-hero um, and, and he's one that because there are times where we really like him. He's a good dad and he does different things and he's generous in certain ways and loving and then he's really sinister and like really not great so great um and i think sometimes we make him more of a hero than the anti part like that we don't see it because um the some productions that i have seen and if you just google caliban and you look at what some sort of production histories are they inevitably make him something other than human you know, there's, they make him a, an animal or a monster of some kind. Now, the argument can be made that in the text he's described as such. But if you figure, if you sort of investigate a little further and say, who is describing him as such? And why are they describing him as such? Pay attention to what he says. Pay attention to what he does. I'll, you know, um, I think that if Caliban then is a monster, and we know that he tried to force himself upon Miranda at some point, and we sort of go, yeah, you should probably lock that guy up. Shouldn't, you know, be allowed to roam free. We dehumanize him in a way. And therefore we excuse or forgive the actions that are being committed against him too. There's some interesting, there's an interesting reading of, of, of the events that, you know, took place with Miranda as well. Uh, and so what, what I think we are going to strive, what, no, I know what we'll strive to do is find is to not let Prosper off the hook by making him a monster. I think he has to be human. We have to recognize Caliban as human at some point. 
and you know maybe they do too and and i think then we can start to look at what is going on a little bit more clearly mm-hmm. are there other things you're wrestling with with this rather male dominated play um, and staging it in a jubilee year so a jubilee year is very important to me for example right i'm a latino director i'm a first generation um i am the first to go to college and the first and the only one in the arts uh and and sometimes i face you know certain uh there there are the certain the kinds of opportunities that come or the like you know you just go oh okay i i i i hesitate to ascribe those to any one thing right but uh, i guess the reason I sort of give that little bit of background to myself is because I'm saying like, I understand that, you know, that, that casting the opportunity is, uh, what opportunity means, especially in a Jubilee year, which is a great, great thing. And I'm looking forward to, um, celebrating that with everybody. I'm honored to be a part of it. Um, with this play, there are, there is a very specific or two very specific questions that need to be minded in that there are characters who are in servitude to a master. And every time, anytime that happens, we, I think, must be hyper aware of the combinations of, of bodies we put up on stage and what the potential takeaway from those combinations are. I think that as storytellers, we have to be responsible for the things we put on stage and we have to be, we have to sort of stamp it, right? We have to be okay with what those potential takeaways are. Um, now, that's not to say that every choice should be, you know, easy and digestible. Some of them are hard, but if we ask, is that okay? It's like, oh, it's really difficult, but is it true? Is it real? And if it, even if it's uncomfortable, then we have to go with it, right? There's a reason why. There's some, there's a light we want to shine. So that's, a, you know, we think about that. You know, and then you think about how every potential uh, combination of um, gender or race, how those are how those reflect upon what's happening in the play. I think those decisions are ones that we'll look at and and be very conscious of as we go forward, Uh, because I think they're they just they require attention. I find sometimes, you know, as an audience member, like I'm, you know, I I find it more. disappointing, I guess, when not if I don't agree with a, a take that a, that a production has 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 gone with or a play has has chosen to do, if it, if it makes me uncomfortable as much as I am that you didn't consider that that was potentially on the table for me to to interpret it that way. Um, if you didn't even think about it, I find that almost more a, a bigger crime than it than you than if you considered it and you decided it was important enough to say anyway. So I think that there's some really big questions to ask with this play because of that, because of, because of the status symbol and how people grab for it and what they do, you know, mm-hmm. it'd be interesting. It's an interesting thing to, to wrestle with. Um, speaking of that, what, what is um, your relationship with Shakespeare? How did you come? To- yeah. Shakespeare and I, you know, funny enough that like, many of the great relationships in my life, they started off a little rocky. <laughs> uh, again, like uh, my, my path to theater was very unconventional. Uh, and my path to, to this moment, like this level of theater is unconventional. And along the way, before I understood it, uh, I didn't really like Shakespeare. I, I quite disliked him, honestly, because it felt a little, um, 
it felt like a, a above above me. It felt like it was a privileged space, um, not for me. And to be fair, I think you know the beginnings of my of my training come from the the group theater. And you know, I I learned from descendant of of, of the group theater, and so everything was sort of much more realistic and. And things and there's there's things about Shakespeare and direct dresses and different stuff and language and the rest that I just did not relate to. And and I have, you know, um, there I have come to find that there's a reason why Shakespeare has become a literature. And in, in, there's many events uh, after the leading up to the printing of the folio and then after it was printed and the the 40 some odd year ban of theater in, in England because of the plague. And the theaters and those books sat on rich people's shelves and the fire came and burned out most of them. So only a very, only a very few survived. And these stories came to us. They had, but they had to come to us in that way. But somewhere along the line, I feel like we forgot what they were meant to be. And when it was broken open for me uh, in training, I felt like the world opened up quite a bit. And I thought, this is what this means. Like, this is what he means. Like, this is about me. This is about all of us and sort of take that romantic uh, theater approach to it uh, where I related to it in such a way that it, Shakespeare always teaches me, always makes me understand more about acting, directing, writing, everything else that we encounter about my life, frankly. Um, and, and so I, my relationship to Shakespeare now is, is one that, there's nothing like it, you know, there, there, there really isn't. I, I direct new plays mostly and I love new plays. There's so many important stories to be told now, but Shakespeare always brings us back to, to something that, that we're missing and he does it in such a way that, uh, that is exciting. I'm a big lover of language plays I'm, and, and figuring out how to communicate that story and how to spark someone in the audience in a way that, a relationship to the language in a way that you know, maybe somebody out there is like me, maybe somebody out there doesn't quite understand. So I always strive to make that person feel it, hear it for the first time. So I'm excited about it. It's a great opportunity. Any final thoughts you want to share with our audience? Yeah. No, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to, uh, to explore this story on that stage uh, with the group of people that would inevitably read there. And I hope that everybody uh, comes and, and relates to it. And I think that we have a real... Uh, it's funny that I, sometimes I, I, I discredit the, the goal because it's simple to tell the story, uh, but it is very, very difficult. And I feel like we have a very ambitious goal for how this story can and should land with an audience. And I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the challenge of that. And I hope it does that when people come to see it. Uh, I'm excited, so excited to be a part of Nataki Garrett's first season. Um, I think she is a remarkable leader, uh, a great director, and uh, to be here in her first season is a great honor. And I think that uh, I look forward to to start it, to being a part of this new era for OSF. It's a really exciting time, I think, to be here. And and part of that excitement is a lot of like uncertainty where I am at the moment without you know the team in place from designers to actors and everything else, but. I'm really excited about it. And I hope everybody, I hope we achieve what it is we set out to do. Thank you so much, Nicholas. Very welcome. Thank you. And that's it today for The Rep. Follow the rest of the series for more exciting interviews on our 2020 season. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at OSF Ashland.